This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Sally Kempton, a meditation teacher who has immersed herself in the world of meditation for over four decades and has earned a reputation as a highly experienced, gifted, and insightful meditation teacher. Sally's approach to meditation draws on her many years of training closely with Swami Muktananda, along with her deep knowledge of kundalini and subtle energies. She has maintained her initial training as a journalist throughout her life, writing and editing magazines, publishing books, and being a regular columnist for a period of time in Yoga Journal. Sounds True will be releasing Sally Kempton's new book, Meditation for the Love of It, as well as the audio program, Beginning Meditation. In part one of this two-part episode, Sally and I spoke about her understanding of the grace-based tradition in which she teaches, the tradition of Kashmir Shaivism. We also spoke about the role of the guru and how she came into her particular style of teaching meditation. Here is part one of my two-part conversation with Sally Kempton. Your book, Sally, Meditation for the Love of It, is not only one of my favorite books Sounds True's ever published, but actually one of my favorite books ever published on meditation. Wow. Truly. And I was reflecting on what I love about the book so much. And what I love about it, well, there's lots of things, but one of them is that it's not just a, here's how you start practicing meditation, but that there's a central point in the book that has to do with the awakening of Kundalini and what meditation practice is like leading up to the awakening of Kundalini and then also after what one's relationship to practice might be like after Kundalini is awakened. So I wanted to talk with you about that and just begin to keep all of our listeners on board with us here. What Kundalini awakening means to you and a little bit about your own experience with it. Sure. Um, I have actually come to have a fairly broad interpretation of what Kundalini awakening is and the, the context in which I understand it actually comes out of the Kashmir Shaiva tantric tradition which which basically says that that in order to know the truth, in order to even be interested in spiritual unfoldment, you actually have to receive a kind of charge from the universe. In other words, that that the human mind, in its uh, in its you know unawakened form, actually isn't isn't even interested in spiritual matters. So, uh, so that so that tradition, which is basically a, a grace based tradition, says that. That even to want to meditate, you know, even to th- even to want to think about the inner world, even and certainly to want to think about God in a in a mystical way, 
uh, you, your kundalini has to have been awakened. But what the tradition says is that there are many, many different levels of kundalini awakening, and that the, what they call the mild level is the one where you start to have a, an interest in spirituality and an interest in meditation. And I would say, it's, at least it's, it's my experience and my view, that, that most people who come to meditation for, let's say, for reasons of self-development, you know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes people... Uh, you know, your medical practitioner tells you that you need to start meditating for your blood pressure. So I would say that my first experience of Kundalini awakening sort of came out of the blue. In a, I was I was in my living room with my new boyfriend listening to a Grateful Dead record, and it, and there was just this moment when overwhelming love just welled up out of nowhere and filled me up. You know, I was twenty six, twenty seven, and. I had never experienced love before in that way, in that kind of global way. And it, it brought with it this this recognition that, A, this was how life was supposed to be. B, this was why I had always been sort of discontented with my life, because it, it was wanting this. And third, a, a recognition that, that this was... This was something that I had to transform my life in order to live up to. I mean, it all happened in about three minutes, and I turned to my boyfriend and I said, there's so much love, and he looked at me like, what are you talking about? You weren't on any drugs or anything? Um, actually, yes, of course. Doesn't that make a difference? Uh, yeah, it does make a difference. But the experience was that it had nothing to do with the drug. And my subsequent experience was that it actually, something came out of nowhere and awakened me. I'd done that drug many times. You know, it's, it, I've never, I never had that experience before or since. So, in other words, I, I'm very aware of the effects of marijuana. It's very good for focus and visualization, but I've never known a drug that, that sort of awakened the heart in that particular way. So what I think happened was that the drug sort of opened up, sort of loosened my boundaries and allowed that experience to arise. And what happened was that the next day, I was writing a novel at the time, which was all about the, how difficult it was for men and women to love each other, and it was all about you know pain and love and victimization and mutual victimization. And I, and I realized that I couldn't do this anymore. Um, and... Uh, and I then spent three or four months uh, trying to learn how to assimilate this with no, n- not knowing any place to go with it. So that was my first experience. And the second time it happened, the second like serious awakening I had, which was much more focused and much more the kind of kundalini awakening that you're talking about, I would say that was, you know, that kind of. It, it was. It was really. It was really a downtown New York hipster's version of St. Paul on the road to Tarsus, you know, just like a, okay, oh my God, this is an experience that's so much beyond my current reality that my life must change. Can, can you tell us more of the specifics? In that one, I had been um, about a year and a half before, uh, and I talk about this in the introduction to the book, I had decided that in order to pursue this path, I had to go for total transformation. So I had gone into a three-month spiritual training with a Bolivian teacher who sort of uh, who had gotten together a group of people from the Esalen world, actually, including John Lilly and Claudio Naranjo, uh, to do a, 
a Sufi-based, you know, complete, integral uh, mind-body-heart training. And it took three months. And when I was done with it, there was kind of no turning back. I couldn't go back to being a New York journalist and living in my apartment in downtown Manhattan and, you know, pursuing my New York Times articles. Because what had happened was that uh, I had actually, I'd seen not just what was possible, but I had had a terribly disturbing glimpse of all the stuff in me that was in the way. Mm. So, in other words, it was it was that moment, actually, that Trungpa talks about in that famous statement of his, better not, if you're, it's better not to get on the spiritual path, but once you're on the spiritual path, it's better not to get off it. Because once the process starts, um, you know, at least in my case, you have to continue with it. So what that led to was my giving up my career and going to live in Los Angeles and working with this group which was doing trainings which I taught in and also continued my own inner work. So after about a year and a half in this of this process I uh, I, I was I went with my then boyfriend to a workshop in Berkeley with a Tibetan teacher named Tartang Tulku and he was giving a classical talk on on uh, you know the path out of suffering, and he did an exercise which which I've come to realize is a, is a standard direct path exercise. He said, "Look at the back of your head," and I was sitting in the front row and I was trying to get the instructions right. And I said something like, "You mean look at the inside of the back of your head, or look at the outside of the back of your head?" And he said, "Who's looking?" And I I just went into that that global awareness, you know, witness non dual state, and the thing that characterized it for me at the time was, along with the sh- complete shift of vision, that that is everything was inside me and everything was okay and there were no problems and there was no there was no ego. Um, and one of the people I was with was a very caustic, very acerbic guy who always kind of scared me because he had a way of honing in on uh, you know on your perceived weaknesses and sort of sort of twisting the knife that for the first time since I'd known him, it didn't bother me because I was in such a state of non-duality, no problem. So when that faded, which of course it did, uh, what I found was that, first of all, the meditation I had been practicing was starting to happen spontaneously. So we had been doing this very complex visualization process, which is kind of close to the Tumo heat in Tibetan Buddhism, where you imagine a little you know, a glowing iron ball in your in your hara center and you bring it up to the heart and then there's a, dev- a goddess in the heart. And, mm-hmm. of course, it was in- an incredibly complex exercise and I never could, had any sense that I was doing it properly. But after that that weekend, it would I would close my eyes, I would start following the instructions and it would start happening spontaneously. The ball would be glowing and the goddess would appear in my heart. And... and this sense of energy rising, classic Kundalini experience, energy rising up my body, opening up the heart center, then rising to the head and my entire head would explode and I would sit there for two hours and come out of it. And And I remember thinking at the time, oh, this is why people have gurus. It's because there's some kind of transmission that occurred. Okay, now, I didn't follow that leap. I mean, here you are, you're practicing on your own. So right. how did you get to the leap that's why people well, have gurus? Well, it was very clear to me that that there had been a transmission at that, at that from Tarthang from Tarthang Tulka, okay, who I never thought of as a guru, but uh, what was striking to me, actually, to backtrack, is that the group I was practicing in 
was deeply anti-guru. In other words, their position was that you don't need a guru, you don't need a spiritual elder, that you can do it on your own. There, there actually doesn't need to be a transmission from a teacher. So the amazing uh, shift in my state that occurred through contact with a teacher uh, you know, actually changed my whole idea at that time of what hmm. the spiritual, of, of what actually activates uh, you know, your shakti, your inner energy in the spiritual journey. And this is another conversation I subsequently have come to realize that it actually doesn't only happen through a guru at all. Um, but it was very clear to me at the time that an energetic transmission from a teacher makes a really big difference in, in how your inner energy unfolds, simply because it was so dramatic. Now, just yeah, with the specific situation it. with Tarthan Tolku, how come you credited his presence? I mean, you could have—you were sitting there, you were meditating. It could have just been happening inside of you. That's a good question. Well, I mean, maybe it was the the crow landing on the palm tree and the coconut falling off. And I would also say that I'd done a lot of practice. I'd been doing a year and a half of very concentrated practice, and probably what happened was that the focused energy of him—I would, you know, how how a teacher. I've experienced this myself as a teacher. When a teacher is giving an instruction and puts focused attention on a student with the intention that a student gets something, understands something, it will very often cause that yeah. understanding to arise. So I would say that was probably what he was doing. And that whatever that kindling was, you know, one of the ways we talk about transmission as a source of awakening is that that the teacher lights the flame that's already present inside the student. I would think that's what happened. And the guru-disciple issue is another issue. In other words, I never felt any particular pull towards him as a teacher. It felt almost as though he was the person who turned the switch. But given the fact that I then went on to spend 30 years with the guru, I would say that that conclusion was perhaps germane to my future path. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to backtrack for a moment, because you mentioned the tradition of Kashmir Shaivism and the tradition in which you teach, and that it's grace-based. So I I was curious what you meant by that, that it's a grace-based tradition. I would say that they're, of course, making binary distinctions is always misleading, but that there tend to be two basic approaches to the enlightenment path, right? One is the, you know, the sort of Zen self-effort-based approach, which is that you you sit there in your cushion until breakthrough happens. And the other is that the grace-based transmission, you you know, you, you need to receive help from the universe or help from a teacher in order to make the breakthrough. So Kashmir Shaivism um, is, a, is a path which... Um, it's completely radically non-dual in, the, in that it teaches that there's, there is only one energy in the world and that it's divine energy and that God is in every atom of the universe and that whatever arises, arises in the mind of the divine. And since everything that arises, including our sense of duality, arises in the mind of the divine, the tradition says that in order to, to take the root back to the recognition of your oneness with the divine... The God in you has to decide that it's time for you to wake up because it's the God in you that caused you to fall asleep in the first place. 
so grace is is actually the English it's the best English translation of a Sanskrit word which is anugraha which means the power in which the um, the individual delusion is removed um, by the universal cosmic force of awakening so does that does yeah. that, uh, does that and answer it, the question? And it sounds like just to also clarify one other point that you now believe that this delivery of grace can both come from a teacher but also simply from the universe yeah. itself. And I actually believe that it does come from the universe or it comes from within you. You know, it comes from comes from the ever present kind of awakening revelation, dis, you know, dispensing faculty that's just part of consciousness. Okay, so now help the listener who's trying to sort out, do I need a guru? Yeah. What's your response to that? Thank you for that question. It's an enormously complex question for me at this point in my life. I did. And the reason that it's, I feel it's very important to have a guru at certain points on the, on the spiritual path is not for the sake of the awakening, which I believe can happen in many, many ways, but for the sake of training. So, In other words, a guru is, at best, someone who can hold up an absolutely clear mirror to you and show you uh, where you are in your, you know, what your enlightened self looks like and, and what the obstacles look like. And a, a guru who, you know, a, a guru, a teacher who's able to perform that function just makes it an awful lot easier to to make the basic discernment between uh, between what's your let's say uh, dualistically deluded ego based you know insane story following self and the the clarity of, of your essential self. So I would say that's the role of the guru. Really, is 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 that level of of deep mirroring? And it's it's not that you need one. And going around looking for a guru is one of the great time-wasting activities that I think seekers engage in. But if you happen to have the karma to have a relationship with a guru who's capable of providing that mirroring, it's, it eases the journey in, in enormous ways. So you're often introduced as a teacher's teacher when it yeah. comes to meditation, meaning that you train teachers. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a guru? No. So why not? I would imagine you performing that function for people. I would say that a teacher who's able to be transparent to the teachings can perform or channel the guru function, which is not quite the same thing as being a guru, because what a guru does, at least in, in the tradition that I was trained in, which, you know, which is a tradition in which... Um, a guru takes total spiritual responsibility for a disciple. So, you know, the, in, in the guru-disciple, the ancient guru-disciple tradition, as I think you know, the disciple basically surrenders all spiritual authority to the guru, and the guru then takes responsibility for guiding the student 100% on the path. It's, a, it's an unbelievably profound commitment that the two make to each other. And I don't have that relationship with students. But do you think that potentially the form that the guru takes needs to be 
updated in a contemporary way, such that maybe it wouldn't be about this total responsibility, etc. But there's a I new do. form emerging. I do, I do, uh, I do, and I, I believe that um, in a certain sense, we have many gurus. You know that at every stage in the journey, there's there's usually someone or something that is opening up the path for us in a new way. And certainly teachers, or I like to make the distinction between a guru and an acharya, and an acharya being someone who is actually expert in the path and has discerned between the teachings that are useful and the teachings that are not useful and is able to give transmission at critical points, but who does not enter into that particular karmic relationship that the traditional sadgurus enter into, which is, I mean, this is a big conversation, the, yeah. the guru conversation, and and one which I wouldn't, I don't have a final position on. I was in a absolutely traditional guru-disciple relationship with, while, with, with Muktananda, yeah. yeah, which meant that I did everything I could to surrender completely, and he helped me with in some rather miraculous ways in transforming the nature of my mind. So let's just pause there. So first of all, you weren't drawn to Tarzan Tolku to be your guru, but you were to Muktananda. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit why? What about him, what about your experience with him created the call? I think that if you have the if you have that level of relationship with a guru, it, there's it, it's a little bit chemical. In other words, it's a little bit like meeting somebody and realizing that this is the person you're going to marry. It's not a decision that you make with your mind. To backtrack a little bit, back to Kundalini. Please. So after that awakening with, with Tartang, um, I, was, I was in a quite an intense meditation training, which, in which we were doing three or four hours of meditation a day with all these complex visualizations. And there was one particular night when I was meditating when the entire world exploded and my awareness, my consciousness just went up in light. And it was very radical, very beautiful, and to me at the time, because I had a lot of unprocessed fear, really scary. Hmm. And in the middle of it, feeling, oh my God, I'm, I'm not prepared to handle this level of, uh, this level of light, the name Swami Muktananda came into my mind. I knew a little bit about him. I knew that he was a, he was a guru who specialized in working with Kundalini, and it was sort of like the universe threw me a lifeline. Mm -hmm. It said, "This person is going to help you work with this energy that's been awakened in you." I'd had a very you know I, I was having a very dramatic awakening experience, and he was actually in this country since 1974 on a tour, um, and I knew that he was coming to Los Angeles. So I did something that I just generally didn't do. I went to see him. I went to a satsang that he was holding. And those were very early days. There were not very not that many people there. And it was the typical 70s scene with you know, lots of swaying people in white clothes. And, and I walked in the room. I looked at him across the room. And these words came into my mind. This, is, this person is, has something to do with the meaning of my life. And it was... It was it was just a a recognition that I had never been aware that I was looking consciously aware that I was looking for a meaning in my life. Yeah. 
But that was the sense. It was like a total destined karmic meeting. And then in that afternoon, I had this big, exploding, heart-opening experience, which was pretty much the experience that I'd had back in my living room and, you know, two years before that had catapulted me onto the journey and which, in retrospect, I realized was really what the, my path is about. It's really about it's really about that opening to love, the opening of the heart. So these two things, the fact that he affected my my heart energy that way, this inner call to destiny, and the fact that he was an unbelievably vibrant, fascinating, you know, delightful, uh, ecstatic, um, classical, you know, ecstasy-giving, dramatic, atomic energy being. So, in other words, he was someone who was capable of totally drawing all your energies to focus because he was so interesting and so emotionally riveting. Um, And because at that time, every word that he said, and he would say these very simple things, would kind of go into my heart and make some kind of transformation. So one of the things he said at that meeting, someone said to him, I have a lot of anger and I, I, I don't know what to do about it. It keeps erupting. And he said, just get rid of it. Throw it away like you would, like you would cut off your hair and throw it away. Now, which is, of course, as you know, in, in my understanding, just A, impossible, and, you know, yeah. and B, just silly. If How only can, we could, yeah. If only we could, exactly. But, you know, that night, I was sitting in my meditation cushion, and I decided I would try it. And the next time I got irritated, which used to happen quite regularly, I actually did this inner practice of cutting it off and, and throwing it away, and it worked. I'm not saying that it yeah. continued to work forever, but what I would find is that when I followed his instructions, there would be a kind of radical shift. So it just felt to me as though, for many reasons, plus I'd been reading Trungpa, who kept talking about the fiery gurus of the of the Kaju lineage, and he was super fiery. So, I, you know, I it he was one of those take no prisoners, fiery Indian teachers. So my heart, my sense of destiny. Um, the uh, and the drama, mm-hmm. you know, the the engaging drama it was, it was kind of like falling in love with, you know, meeting the love of your life. So. No, I don't know that much about Muktananda, but the impression I have, and this is from thousands of feet far away, is that a lot of people who met with him had these Kundalini awakening experiences. Yeah. But what I never have understood, and maybe you can help me here, is what he actually taught people or how he trained people beyond helping their kundalini awaken. And I'm wondering if you could summarize what some of the key teachings or trainings were that you got from him. Good question. Well, his basic deep teaching was God dwells within you as you. And that was what he taught and see God in others. And what he managed to do was, first of all, just by... uh, I mean, he taught classic Vedanta and Kashmir Shaivism. In other words, he he taught from Shankaracharya. He taught the self as the witness of the mind. You know, the supreme reality is such at Ananda, being consciousness and bliss. He was a classic Indian teacher of what Daniel Goleman calls the, you know, the Vedanta-based devotional tradition. So, it's non-dual. Um, the self is consciousness. You know, the self. Uh, remove the ego and the self, you know, the self shines, that very, very basic 
non-dual Indian Vedantic teaching. So he trained me very deeply in that. In other words, he taught Vedanta, uh, and he taught in such a way that he would give these teachings out of the Indian scriptures. Here's an example. You know, the supreme power manifests the universe from within herself, the way a spider spins a web out of his own body. So he would give that metaphorical teaching, uh, and, and as he would give it, you would experience it as a reality. In other words, I would have over and over again, he would say, every particle of this universe is scintillating with consciousness, with bliss, with intelligence. And I would experience the universe in my own body becoming, you know, becoming diffused, becoming consciousness. So he taught um, by constantly giving you an experience of unity through his words. Uh, that was part of it. Another part of it was that he ran this spiritual boot camp, in, you know, in which there were a group of people, we worked our butts off doing seva, running this very, very high-pressure tour. Nobody slept more than four hours a night for years. Everything, it, you know, it was World War III because if you screwed up, there were... Um, that you know, it felt would feel like the entire universe had caved in on you. So you learn the the lessons that you learn in working with other people, you know, in in sacrificing your, uh, you know, your sleep, your needs and wants to a, a greater cause. And for me, especially in seeing how my psychological issues and my obstructions and my stuff would come up, and. You never could discuss it with anybody. You never could process. You simply had to deal with it as a projection of your own mind. And though I wouldn't recommend that as a path for most people, and um, you know, there are many, many downsides to that particular path, but the truth is it's an unbelievable spiritual training. You know, it, it just teaches you to, to uh, not to look at others as the source of your happiness and and misery, but to constantly turn it back on yourself and, you know, practice with an arrow pointing towards your own heart. So what the first five or six years with him did for me was sharpen my ability to, first of all, to focus, and secondly, to give up my stuff, you know, to give up my agendas, to let go of my, of my ego, to let go of my resistance, to actually become transparent to the workings of the Shakti of the energy. And it was a classic guru-disciple, sort of a classic devotional guru-disciple relationship in that the experience of ecstasy that was present for me in his physical presence was so extreme that unbelievably difficult living conditions and relational conditions didn't matter because the spiritual experience that I was having kind of 18 hours a day was so much more powerful and I think that's the amazing thing about being in the company of a, of a guru who's really kind of transcends the human world, you know, who's able to bring an experience of such radical transcendence that a lot of your delusion and mental fog just melts in the light of it. You know, so that said, once he died, once he left his body, I was left with with a transformed consciousness, with a radically open heart, and with all my unprocessed psychological issues. So mm. all the shadow stuff that I had worked with by going, okay, not that, not that, not that, some of it had been dissolved. You know, the Vedantic teaching, as you, as I'm sure you know, or you may know, is that 
It's a very famous teaching from Shankaracharya. When the light of realization shines, all darkness is burned up by that light, just the way when you, you turn on the light in a cave, the darkness disappears. So there is something about putting all your childhood pain, all your, you know, all your romantic longings, all your ambition into that fire. It burns up a lot of it. Um, but then you're left with what wasn't burned up. And, and then you have to do psychological work. You know, so I actually spent the next 15 years, probably, just like sweeping up the pieces of the debris that had been left in my consciousness by the very, very radical, transcendent, transformative experience that I'd been living in. So what I think happens in such a situation is that, you know, just to put it in terms of the tradition, is that all the karmic tendencies that you brought into this lifetime, they all come up. They just get exposed. Some of them get sort of dissolved. And then you have to deal with the rest of it. And it, so it's like a very, very, it's like a very fast-track journey that not that many people really have the time, the life circumstances to pursue. You know, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. By that time, I was a swami. So I was a, you know, I was a professional spiritual practitioner, so to speak. That was my life. I actually don't recommend that kind of guru-disciple relationship for someone who's not on that kind of fast track. You know, take me to the end of it in this lifetime. Unless path. their kundalini is calling them, as Unless you described. Unless kundalini is calling. I think you have to be dragged onto this, onto this path, I think. Yeah. So I want to circle I don't back. usually talk about this so dramatically. But. No, it's good, but I, but I want to uh, circle back because my original observation was that the way that you teach meditation is deeply informed by your own kundalini awakening experiences. And what I'm curious about is the exercises and the approach that you lay out in meditation for the love of it. Is that what you received from Swami Muktananda? Yeah. Or where did the approach that's in this book, which I think is incredibly creative and luscious and makes meditation a passionate, enjoyable endeavor, where did it come from from you? Well, two things. First, my original awakening experience was an experience of the arousing of bliss in my inner field. And what I found was that in meditation in those early days, um, I would find myself inwardly following the bliss, to use Campbell's phrase, you know, that that I was very naive. Um, I didn't really understand what self was, you know, what that, that no self-self was. Um, and his teaching was meditate on yourself, which I understood not to be your ego self, but something greater. So, so I, I would search for myself by following the path of the, um, well, what we call the Shakti, which is a vibrating, pulsing, um, uh, kinesthetic experience inside the inner field that opens when you turn inside meditation. And in those days, I meditated with a mantra. And as you know, as as you know, one of the qualities of mantra as a practice is that that mantras contain a you know a, a an energy of their own. So when you work with a mantra, it kind of penetrates the energy inside the mantra, penetrates the energy inside your inner field, and it kind of sinks you deeper into your subtle body, into your causal body, ultimately opening up the the super causal body, the the Turiya state, the fourth state. 
So that was what I would do. I would say the mantra and the energy would sort of penetrate me into deeper and deeper states. And then at a certain point, I got basically as far as I was going to go. And I just, I went into this place where I would close my eyes, I would go into meditation, I would get into this kind of restful state. And then I would sit there for an hour. uh, And it was really nice. But I wasn't to put it in shorthand terms, I wasn't becoming more enlightened. I wasn't becoming more awake. I had spent... My my work for years had been editing Swami Muktananda's books. I was very pickled in his teachings, you know, in the way that you are when you work with your teacher's writings. I had created out of his talks a, a book on meditation um, in which he he spoke about meditation on the self, and I began to try and unpack that teaching um, in my own experience. So what does it really mean to meditate on the self? What self is it that I'm finding? Is this the true self? Is this, you know, some kind of energy field in my consciousness? It was a, I just began to explore my own field, and I would find that suggestions would come up from inside that would kind of lead me down certain paths, and I would follow them, then there would be an opening, there would be a deepening, you know, my life outside of meditation would also begin to shift. So I got together a group of friends, I was still living in the ashram, who were also committed meditators who were stuck, because everybody, everybody kind of got stuck at a certain point, Um, because there were not instructions about what you do. You know, there were there were instructions about what you do to begin. And if you actually listened carefully to Guru Mai, who was then the teacher of the path, if you listened carefully to her teachings, you would see that she also was giving uh, subtle instructions. But there was really no playbook. So I started to kind of try to find, a, you know, a playbook that could be shared. And I worked with these friends, and I would give them instructions in what I'd been doing, and then they would share what their experience was. And then I started, I just started teaching it to 50 people and then, you know, then to 150 people and then giving a couple of large courses in it. And I found that these these little pathways that I discovered were transformative for other people as well. So I wrote the book. So in other words, it, what's in the book came out of exploration and also a willingness to to kind of follow the signals of of this kinesthetic, vibrating, energetic thread that that is the pathway of the awakened kundalini. Yeah, that's what I'd like to hear more about. You have a chapter in the book called Letting the Shakti Lead. And I was so interested when I got to this point, meaning the meditative practice is tuning in, yeah. experiencing this shakti, and maybe you can help us understand more how do we know when we're really contacting that and then letting it lead the way in our practice yeah so we can do it if you want yeah let's do it okay i don't know any way to to discern it except to experiment so so if you want to close your eyes yeah and tune into where you feel energy in your body the way that i actually find that it's most useful to do this is actually to f- just focus on the place where the breath is caressing your inner body. You know, as the as the inhalation comes in, it strikes your inner body in a certain way. And as the exhalation kind of expands out from that, 
there is an experience, maybe in your heart, maybe in your belly, maybe in your throat. And as you tune into that, just the place where the the flow of the breath is touching your inner body, you notice that there's a kind of pulsation or a feeling of aliveness there. If you'd like to just say what's occurring for you as you follow that instruction, then we can see what's going on. Well, and just to track with our audience, so once I contact that, which I I have here, what's next? So what does it feel like? Uh, It feels in me like first a fullness in my lower belly, and then I started noticing a kind of pulsing up more in the head. Right. So if you were to follow the pulsing, if your attention is kind of drawn to the head and the pulsing in the head, so then let yourself be with the pulsing. This is the next step. Let yourself feel your way into the pulsing. And then there are two ways to go here. The first is to just have a moment of recognition that this pulsing is actually the shakti in your body. And that recognition is really important. It sort of puts you into what, for want of a better word, I call dialogue with your own energy. And then you can ask, okay, so where do you want to go? Where are you leading? That's one way to do it. And then you sort of wait and you stay with the pulsation. And it's very important here because, of course, sometimes what the Shakti will do is bring up a lot of thoughts or is this the right way to go? So you need to do your whatever your, your practice is for working with thoughts. Let's just say for now it's noting thoughts as thoughts. But see if you can stay with where the pulsation is taking you. And now here's a trick. See if you can slightly direct the pulsation towards the back of your body, which is kind of a trick for allowing the energy to take you inward. So what will kind of happen is that the energy then starts to expand outward towards the back. And again, this is pretty much my experience with it. And it's a lot of people's experience. Is that you begin to become aware of, uh, of the field of energy, the, you know, the pulsing field of energy that's larger than you. Then you move in it. You take yourself through it. And you follow where it leads. It might evolve as an expansion, as a sense of expansion. It might evolve as, a, you know, as an awareness of awareness. It might evolve in a, in a visual way, which you know, happens to a lot of people. It may send you into a kind of causal body state where you're just out. So it will evolve in, in many, many different ways, but you're not trying to direct it, and you're not trying to impose a, a system on it. Um, but you do give a little directionality to it. I've found, this is one of the things that I discovered in the process of meditation, that if you bring your direction behind the body, it will tend to take you into an inward state. Whereas if you let your attention go in front of the body, 
you often end up in thoughts or fantasies or reverie. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm curious, in all of your years teaching, do instructions like that work with people who are more beginners, or is that more a series of instructions where you work with you know, practitioners who have been meditating for a while? They definitely work better for people who have more practice. I do two levels of meditation teaching. I give a meditation class, and my beginning meditation CD is very much... It's a very concentrative. It's you know, it's 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 very specific instructions, and and we work with a visual form or a mantra or a breath practice. Very simple, because I really think that you need to carve out the groove of meditation with concentrative practice. I'm a big believer in the power of concentrative practice. But normally, in a meditation workshop, I will give an instruction that asks people to go inward in this particular way. I usually direct them, because I do a lot of meditation based in the heart center, I usually direct them to go into the back of the heart and see if they can move through the back of the heart. And a lot of people who are just beginners actually do find that that great heart spaciousness opens up. But, you know, with a beginning meditator, they're so concerned with doing it right and the mind is so tricky and, you know, so much of it has to do with getting yourself comfortable in the body and having a way to work with your thoughts that it tends to be hard for beginning meditators to do that more subtle thing for more than a minute or two without getting lost. So, yes, the answer to your question is it's, it's much more uh, revelatory for experienced meditators. Now, because I want to bring all of our listeners along with us, I'm wondering, could you take us through this back-of-the-heart meditation? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. So, close your eyes. You really kind of need to be in an upright posture to do this. So, the way I like to do it is to bring yourself to the edge of the chair if you're on a chair. And then breathe in and let the breath make the base of the posture heavy. And exhale and let the Exhalation, just gently lift the spine up through the crown. So again, inhaling, let the inhalation deepen and ground the contact between the base of your body and the seat you're sitting on. And exhaling, feel as though the breath is lifting your torso from inside so that without so much using your muscles. But just let the breath kind of guide your body into a subtly more upright posture. And if you're not used to contacting the heart center, you might want to put your hand over the center of your chest with your palm right over the place where the breastbone is a little bit, the breastbone kind of pokes out a little bit. And inhaling, feel that the breath flows in and down to the center of the chest. So you're a little bit to the right of the physical heart. This is what's sometimes known as the spiritual heart. And the breath flows in, and you can have the feeling with the inhalation that the breath is it's almost like a subtle caress 
it's just opening up and bringing your attention to this area of the body, the, the area in the very center of the chest, deep inside. And with the exhalation, you can gently feel that this area is expanding just a little bit. And you notice, as you do, as you inhale softly, letting the breath come to rest in the heart, in the inner heart center, and exhale, feeling that the energy is just gently expanding your sense of connection to that center. And if it feels right, you can imagine that there is a flower in your heart, like a rose or a lotus flower, and with the inhalation, the breath touches the flower and there's a sense of the petals opening. And with the exhalation, the petals open a little more. And as the breath flows in and out through the heart, you just allow your attention to notice the quality of the energy in your heart without trying to make the energy be soft or open or in any way trying to change it, just being aware of the energetic experience of energy in your heart. And then with the next inhalation, feel that there's a softening or an opening in the energy in the back of your heart. And let your attention move through that opening. So in the inhalation, with the inhalation, your awareness is moving through this energetic softening in the back of your heart. And with the exhalation, you begin to become aware that behind your heart There's an expansive field of awareness. And the breath now flows in and with your attention flows into the back of the heart and you become aware of the larger heart. The very benign presence of a spaciousness that opens up behind your heart. And you just keep allowing the breath to flow into the heart, out through the heart, opening little by little your sense of this soft, expansive energy, this field of awareness that opens up behind your heart. And if it feels right to you, if it feels natural, you might allow yourself to gently explore the area of the back heart. How far does it reach behind you? And 
not with any agenda, just gently feeling your way into this expansive region in the back of the heart. The breath flowing in and out through the heart. If thoughts arise, when you notice your thinking, just note thought or thinking. Just let yourself rest with the breath, the caress of the breath, the sense of expansion through the back of the heart. Thank you, Sally. What I'm realizing is that there are so many things I want to talk to you about. So for now, we're going to call this the end of part one, but have a part two to our conversation. I've been speaking with Sally Kempton. She's the author of a beautiful new book from Sounds True called Meditation for the Love of It, a book that has a foreword by the author of Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert. She's also created a new two-CD program with Sounds True called Beginning Meditation. And this is the conclusion of part one. We'll continue with more coming up on part two with Sally Kempton. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.